Well, hey, at this time, we're going to turn to the sermon series that we've been in for the last several weeks. Uh, We've been talking about the Ten Guardians, and these are the Ten Commandments that we know Moses received up on the mountain uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, next to me, if you are new to this sermon series, you might see this prop and wonder what this is. And this is a representation of, in the Old Testament, what was called a boundary stone. And a boundary stone was used to uh, mark off territory of places you could go, places you couldn't go, whose territory was where. And the word has a lot to say about things like honoring boundary stones and not moving boundary stones. So we thought it would be a cool picture to describe what we're looking at in our Ten Commandments. Because our culture so often looks at things like God's commands as things that are inhibitive, uh, things that are uh, repressing and pushing us down, things that are, are chains that we, we, we would be chained to. But actually, boundary stones help us know where the guardrails are. And that's why I love the title of this series, The Ten Guardians. These principles, these commandments of thou shalt, thou shalt not, you know, all of these principles are here for our safety so that personally and for our families, for our neighborhoods, for our country, for nations around the world, uh, it, it tells us all over the word that the nation that trusts in the Lord, the, the nation that obeys His commands will be blessed. There is so much health and there's so much life in the things that God has commanded us in these Ten Commandments. So here today, we are going to be looking at the commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery. And again, let me say on the front end of this, uh, recognizing being sensitive to our online uh, situation that we're in right now, we have families in many places, I'm sure, that are, that are gathered around for the message. And I just want to say, parents, uh, just use a little bit of discretion. Uh, we're talking about the commandment to not commit adultery. So I'm going to do my best to be very sensitive to all age groups. You know, it's very different on a Sunday where we're gathered live. Our children are often children's church. So I'm getting into a little more sensitive of an issue regarding maturity level for kids. I just encourage you uh, to take oversight of your children and do what's best on whether or not they should be here in the message, throughout the message. And again, I'm not going to get really, you know, explicit or anything like that, uh, but I just want you to be aware that that's the content on where we're going moving forward. So Exodus chapter 20 verse 14, as the commandments are being unfolded, says, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, Proverbs 5.18 says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Hebrews 13.4 tells us marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So marriage is what we're going to be talking about here today, and specifically the sanctity of marriage. Uh, marriage is, in our modern day, a contract that people enter into. Um, contract, uh, I'm implying in that, in that definition, contract, that it's I will if you will. Uh, it's a breakable contract. However, God ultimately is the author of marriage. And marriage is a covenant that was instituted by God in the time of man's innocence, before the fall. And it's one of the most fundamental building blocks of healthy culture and society. 
No wonder the enemy would work so hard to try to tear marriages apart and tear marriage down. So today as we talk about this topic, and again, there's so many things that we could talk about, and it would be so great to deep dive. I'm only going to hit the tops of the waves here as we look at it, but I want to hit three things. I want to talk about the definition and purpose of marriage, because that'll help us understand how to keep it sanctified. And then I want to talk about briefly what causes marriages to fail and then fail into adultery. And then third, I want to talk about how we can build up and construct an affair-proof marriage. All right, so let's talk first about the definition and purpose of marriage. So let's, I talked about a modern definition that it's a contract between people, but, but a biblical definition of marriage, it's the outward expression and demonstration of the inward commitment of love between a man and a woman. It's a covenant between a man, a woman, and God. I mean, literally, it's a miracle that takes place. I've heard people say sometimes, you you know, when they meet their spouse or their future spouse, you know, they'll say, wow, they completed me. They're my other half. But, you know, from a biblical perspective, marriage isn't a half a person and a half of person coming together, making a whole. It's this incredible miracle. A whole person and a whole person with God in the middle of the covenant makes the two one, one together. They become one. One plus one with God in the equation, they become one in Him. Really powerful thought there. Uh, It's a total commitment of one person to another as well. It's an all-in type of engagement. It's lifelong. And then maybe another way to put it, it's giving oneself 100% to the other person. So let's, uh, with, with that as a starting definition there, let's look just real briefly at five biblical purposes of marriage. Okay, number one, to have a life partner. We know we read in Genesis, man was not created to live alone. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I mean, think about it, right? What's one of the most severe forms of punishment in prison? Solitary confinement, right? Uh, We were made as human beings to need contact and relationship with people. You know, introvert, extrovert, wherever we are in in that arena, we ultimately need human contact. And marriage is the epitome. It's having a partner for life. Second uh, function of marriage, purpose of marriage, is to walk in spiritual unity. There's tremendous power in the marriage covenant. Oftentimes when I perform weddings, many times couples will want to take communion in their wedding ceremony. And, and oftentimes I'll encourage them to have the communion ceremony right after they, they have exchanged their vows as husband and wife and been pronounced husband and wife because this then becomes the first meal that they've taken together as this new miracle of husband and wife. And I'll even encourage them behind the scenes that whenever they take communion together, man, there's a whole new availability of God's power because there's a unity between husband and wife that's very unique. It's very different than than, uh, all of the other great places where we can agree with others in prayer and be standing together. Uh, Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
We can also look at this principle of spiritual unity in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 to 12. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I tell you, just a small example of, you know, this idea of two are better than one and you get a much better return on your labor. In this uh, season, this social distancing season, you know, uh, simple grocery shopping has become so much more of a chore. And both my wife and I have recognized how much it's better it is when we can get to the grocery store together and tag team that shopping process. Well, hey, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different examples where we can look at how powerful and, hey, how wonderful it is for us to have somebody to be in unity and agreement with as we're walking through life. So there is power, and it tells us in the Word of God, when a husband and a wife join together in faith and unite themselves with Jesus Christ. That's the third strand. A two-fold cord is good, threefold even stronger. Okay, the third function of a marriage or, or purpose of marriage is to have an intimate relationship for sexual relationship, to enjoy a guilt-free uh, expression of love. And so uh, I do want to point out here, you know, uh, from a biblical standpoint, as opposed to everything we see in our modern culture, there, was, there is one place that intimacy, physical intimacy, was designed for, and it was for the marriage covenant. It really gets pretty cut and dry when we understand biblically, uh, and, and I say that just because so many times as a pastor, I think folks are looking for places where the lines can be blurred, where sharp lines can be made fuzzy, and at the end of the day, when it comes to physical expressions of intimacy, that was a gift that was designed for the marriage covenant alone. Uh, Genesis 2.25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's an unashamedness when uh, physical intimacy is left to the exclusive place within the marriage covenant. Now, uh, number four reason for marriage is to begin a new family, reproduce and raise children. Again, God desired uh, there to be these roles of father and to be the role of mother uh, under God uh, in the development and nurture that goes on in raising children. Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And then the fifth reason we'll look at here on the purpose of marriage is to be, and I think this one is so cool, to be a natural example to the world of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Isn't that cool that a marriage paints a picture for the relationship between the church was the bride of Jesus Christ? And a little more lengthy of a passage, but it talks all about this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 34. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to him 
as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a quote from Genesis that we just looked at right there. This is a profound mystery, verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So again, there's so much that we could break out in that picture on uh, healthy marriage and what it looks like, but there's powerful examples that are laid out on that husband and wife interaction. And again, what a beautiful picture for the world on what the church ought to aspire to uh, as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so definition and purpose of marriage. I said that was the first area we wanted to look at. Let's now look at what are some of the things that can cause a marriage to fail and specifically cause it to uh, fail into adultery. So, the, the, uh, so I'm going to list these out as different causes. Cause number one, I, I don't want to be stereotyping, and I know I'm generalizing a little bit, but in general, women more than men, women, it can become a lack of affection. Uh, so that would be one of the first reasons that we look at. Uh, second, men, it can be lack of the physical intimacy taking place. Again, that's a generalization, and I don't want to overstate that. That might be a place where uh, a man might identify in one area, a woman the other area. So I'll just list them as uh, reasons one and two. One, lack of affection. Two, lack of physical intimacy. Uh, recognizing that both are needed for a marriage to stay healthy. Uh, third reason where things can fall into um, failure and into uh, moral failure in a marriage uh, is low self-esteem. Sometimes if somebody is dealing with such a level of brokenness, they can become very susceptible uh, to things outside that could ensnare them and pull them away. A fourth area, misplaced friendships. I can remember early on in ministry somebody training on uh, the importance, uh, you, you know, to have a healthy marriage long haul, uh, to make sure that the proper boundary stones and guardrails are set up in life. It was very interesting. They didn't talk about um, falling into adultery first. They talked about falling into emotional adultery first. So in other words, misplaced friendship, where a friendship becomes overgrown and there becomes actually an, an emotional attachment that's unhealthy that paves the way for other things to happen. Hey, more times than not, I know in the years of, of working with folks and counseling and so forth, uh, the pathway to adultery uh, oftentimes starts in a place where a lack of awareness for the need for boundaries is there. And then overgrown emotions, overgrown feelings, uh, lack of accountability and guardrails work their way into failure, coupled with dysfunction on the marriage front. All right, so tying all of that in together. Uh, a fifth reason where there can be uh, a collapse of, uh, in marriage and uh, adultery is a failure to set and implement personal boundaries. So again, I, I related to that a little bit before, but again, if you set the guardrails in place, um, 
I was, again, coached early on in ministry. You know, that verse in Scripture that says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. And so if we'll live in a way where we snuff out those little foxes, we'll never have to worry about battling the giants. So it's, again, just living with intentionality. It's living soberly. It's living in awareness uh, and having uh, and implementing personal boundaries. Uh, A sixth area that can make somebody vulnerable here is depression. Again, it kind of goes in with that area that I mentioned earlier of low self-esteem, but depression can be something that can open the door uh, because somebody is not just, just they're, they're in a dysfunctional place and uh, could make dysfunctional decisions in that place. So uh, that's not to say that if somebody is depressed that it automatically means that what I'm saying is it makes somebody vulnerable. You want to, in that, that place, in that circumstance, be much more diligent to create guardrails and to be uh, working toward health, to be very honest with what you're dealing with and how you're feeling and work toward health. All right, and then a seventh area, unfortunately, and I wish I could say this is only something that that I've seen outside the church, but I've seen it, I I think, just as much inside as outside, is revenge and bitterness. And, you know, we need to be so wary of allowing bitter roots to develop in our heart, just toward other people in general, but how much more so when we look at keeping uh, marriage sanctified, keeping it holy unto the Lord. So let's think about marriage and the, the pitfalls and the snares that could lead to adultery. Let's look at it from another perspective. I just kind of listed seven causes, seven things uh, to be aware of, but you know, marriage conflict typically Uh, is created from one of two places. So I'm taking those seven points, and now I'm just presenting just a whole other way to look at this. So marriage conflict is typically created in two places. If the couple fails to make each other happy, or if the couples make each other unhappy. So if there's a failure to make happy or uh, in, an actual making of the person unhappy, unhappy uh, there could be a danger and dysfunction and, and um, garbage that winds up coming down the road after that. I didn't want to spend a lot of time in that area, and again, that's a conversation I think I would much rather have, um, you, you know, in person when I know, you know, kids are out of the room, we could deep dive in so many things in this message, but I, I think, you know, Holy Spirit can really work in people's lives, even in, 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 in this setting that we're working in right now, to help people understand, you know, to be taking inventory, are there any little foxes? Are there any places where I have to do diligence to keep junk out? Have I allowed any bitterness to get in? You know, um, uh, God can work powerfully, even just as, as we would look at those inventory areas and really be aware. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time now is talk about the third area that I mentioned up front, and that's how to build a strong, affair-proof marriage. Now, I want, to, I want to start with this question. Do you view marriage as one of the most valuable institutions, one of the most valuable opportunities in life? And, and I'm not just speaking to married folks. I'm speaking to anybody of any age, of any season, that thinks you might be married down the road. Uh, for anybody who's not married yet, for anybody who's engaged, 
For anybody who is young enough where you're saying, well, I'll be married someday, but that's not on the radar now, how great to be thinking ahead. I'm so grateful as a brand new pastor that was newly married, having people pour these kinds of principles into my life um, so that I could, on the front end, really get them, you know, ingrained and integrated into my life setting. And by the way, we don't ever move away from these things as well. These, these things are great if we get them on the radar before we're married, but they're things that we want to stay aware of all the way through uh, the, the run in a marriage. So, uh, so again, I want to ask you, are you viewing marriage as something very, very precious and very, very valuable. I saw something on TV. Uh, it, it was in passing on some, some kind of a show or a sitcom, and the one person said to the other person, well, hey, you're only going to get married five or six times, so you might as well blah, blah, blah. You know, when it was meant to be funny and it was meant to sort of make people laugh at the dysfunction of that statement, but you know what? It, it does bring to light a picture of just treating marriage as just you know, almost like taking a vacation or, hey, if I enter into the first experience, I always have a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth. You know, that's not the biblical approach that God wants us to take toward marriage. It's something that, that's really sanctified, this, this incredible miracle covenant that God instituted for us as people. So uh, if we see it as valuable, we'll treat it as valuable. And think about it this way, right? Banks have vaults to defend and protect money. You know, they just don't leave like thousands and millions of dollars just laying out on the table because they don't care. They keep it locked up in these very sophisticated vaults and things like that. Kings will build moats and walls around their kingdoms in order to defend the kingdom. Think about, uh, you know, like in a game of soccer, you know, the goal is not left wide open. There's a defender to block and defend the goal, to protect it. In football, uh, the offensive lineman, his, he, he's uh, charged with protecting the quarterback. So the value you place on your marriage is going to determine how well you defend it. So if I had asked you to take care of a 12-carat diamond for me, uh, you'd probably carefully defend it. I would hope you would. Um, uh, you wouldn't just throw it into the glove box, you know, as I handed it to you as you're driving away or something like that. You know, so the picture is that the value that we, we give to something ought to be matched with that same level of, of protecting that uh, to demonstrate the value. So, so let me now just give us five simple things that we can do to defend our marriage. So again, I don't care how long we've been married, this is something we can take and apply. And if you're not yet married, then treasure this away and make this a part of how you step into your marriage season. Okay, the first one, and this is so big, goes back to the little foxes. Defend your eyes and your ears because they are the gateway to forming your thoughts and your beliefs. So often, you know, I've heard it referred to, and I refer to it, your eye gate and your ear gate. So again, go back to that, that picture of the king defending his kingdom. You know, the doorway into that kingdom, you know, it's protected with a moat and there's walls all around and that gate is very secure and at night when it's closed, it's barred up and there's guards there watching. You know, that's a great picture for us to understand. You know, there is very little that filters into our eye gate and our ear gate that is absolutely neutral. In other words, what we're, what we're bringing in through those gates is either positive or negative in any variety of areas. 
So when we look at our eye gate and our ear gate concerning marriage, we want to be very careful. What do we entertain ourselves with? What do we allow to come before our eyes? Uh, Are we spirit-driven or flesh-driven in our eyes and our ears and so forth? Um, Now, this again is not to overly stereotype, but men biologically are wired much more visually than women. That's not to say that women aren't, but it's very interesting, the eye gate and the ear gate in general. Men will get much more tripped up with their eyes, and women will get much more tripped up with their ears. Each could equally get messed up in both areas, but again, just a good awareness for us to have. Um, Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 27 to 29. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. So again, this picture is talking about, you know, again, it's, uh, it's an exaggerated example Get rid of your eye if you have to, uh, because what comes through your eye is going to corrupt what's on the inside. It's going to be corruptive to you. So, so really what this is saying is take a very, very radical stance to be a watchman over what's coming through your eye gate and what's coming through your ear gate. And church, if I could just meddle a little bit more here, one of the problems that we face as Christians in our modern American culture is we are the frog in the kettle. And again, if you've been around Grace and Peace for any period of time, I I often refer back to this example, but, you know, it's this picture of, you know, if you were to take a frog, you know, if you were having a hankering for frog legs and you were to put a frog in a pot of boiling water, a live frog, that frog would have enough sense to save its life and it would spring. It literally would spring off the top of the water out of the boiling pot to safety. But if you were to take that same frog and just put him down in, I don't know, frog temperature water, whatever that is, and then slowly turn up the heat, the frog would not have enough sense to recognize the danger and he would slowly boil to death in that pot. And the ancient, the ancient boundary stones of God's commands how to live, and what's righteous and what's not righteous, what should make us blush versus what doesn't make us blush, what we find offensive, what we find acceptable. It's been moved time and time and time again in our modern culture. So I'm saying all that just to pause long enough. I'm pausing on this one because this is a biggie. If we allow ourselves to meditate on people that are celebrating and focusing on dysfunctional things in their marriage as they're made fun of and laughed at and, and, and uh, depicted in movies and, and sitcoms and shows like that. We have to always ask ourselves, what is the message that's getting sent through my eye and my ear gate? Because we will become the frog in the kettle and we will start to get desensitized toward what's an affront to God and we'll start getting desensitized toward what God really wants us to grab a hold of. So again, I can't overstate that enough. It is a very, very wise and healthy thing for us on a regular basis to really be taking inventory. You know, we believe so strongly here at the church, you know, uh, that, that we don't want to take principles like this and fall into legalism, you know, where we just say, hey, 
Go online and look at the officially sanctioned list of movies and books and, and things that, that you can participate in as a Christian. And then, you know, on another page, here's the things that are not sanctioned. You know, we, we, we don't want to operate that way because that's legalistic. What we have to do, I mean, there are certain things that are pretty clear and cut and dry in the Word of God. I shouldn't be looking, watching, participating. Uh, I should be looking, watching, participating. You know, some things are very cut and dry. But anything that people kind of squabble over or, or you might say is in more of a gray area, it's really not that gray if you just pause and ask yourself, what's the effect it's having on me? And I want to cycle back to what I said at the beginning of this point. There is very little that has a neutral effect. Most is either pulling us toward health and life-giving and the things of God, or it's pulling us away from those things. So I'd encourage you, grab a hold of that just from a pastoral perspective on, on this message. This is a great uh, application point to take away and just take a good inventory on, all right, am I feeding my eye gate and my ear gate? Is my mind, my subconscious, my thinking, what I see and I picture, uh, is all of that being flooded and being washed with the Word of God and sanctified and, and bolstered and made more healthy? Or am I allowing polluting things to come my way? The little foxes will wind up spoiling the vine. All right, let's move on then uh, to, the, to the next point here on how we can bolster and strengthen our faith, uh, um, uh, uh, bol bolster and strengthen our marriage. Defend your eye gate and your ear gate, number one. Number two, defend your thought life. Okay, so I did really lean into that as I talked about eyes and ears, but there also is a step further that we have to take. Proverbs 4.23, this is in the, the Good News Version. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. So it's not only enough to be minding and, and putting a watchman on the wall for our eye gate and our ear gate. We also have to take authority over the thoughts that we're allowing ourselves to think. Now realize, our world is throwing things our, our way that could run across our mind as a thought. The enemy is working, trying to plant seeds and run things across our mind. There's our own flesh and our own wants, our own concerns. And then there's the voice of the Spirit and God's Word and, and things that are of God. We have to... At, what I'm saying is this, the thought passing through your head isn't the issue. It's what do you do to filter and to keep your thought life exalted unto the Lord. The Bible tells us we've been given the mind of Christ. It also tells us in the Word that we are to bring every thought into captivity to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So what that means is as we're going through life, you know, we could be you know, let's re relate this back to marriage and affair-proofing our marriage. You know, um, you have a thought that comes across your mind and, and God helps you recognize that's a seed of bitterness. Get rid of that. And so then, then, then what I'm encouraging us to do here on defending our thought life is to say, I make a decision. I release that in the name of Jesus. I won't be given to bitterness in Jesus' name. Or maybe it's saying, no, I take that thought and I bring it into captivity to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, if there's a thought that comes in that's, that's not God's way, not a healthy thought, not an uplifting thought, I'll then speak the opposite of whatever that thought was. 
You know, maybe, maybe somebody makes a comment, you know, and I'm wanting to go down this road. What did they mean by that? I wonder what they were trying to say. Hey, was that a shot across the bow? You know, now I'm getting into just not a healthy way to, to process that. And sometimes I'll say, no, I bring that thought into captivity to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Father, I choose to walk in love, which says I will believe the best, I'll assume the best, and even if I recognize, hey, that was a shot across the bow, Lord, you've told me to keep no record of wrongs. Lord, I'm releasing that in the name of Jesus. Hey, if it's bugging me enough, I might have to go back and do that over and over. So, Lord, that one smarts. That one hurts a little bit. Lord, I'm still finding myself dwelling on this, but I keep giving it over to you, and I thank you, your Lord. I thank you that your love is flowing through my life. So I'm just trying to give some practical examples on that process of defending our thoughts. Another verse in Scripture tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the eye gate and the ear gate leads to our thought life. We want to make sure if we are defending the gates and then defending the thoughts, they are so good. And it's not just saying, okay, defending my thought life is standing against wrong things. It is making sure that we are sowing right things, praying blessings, praying what we want to see, praying what's life-giving uh, into the situation, uh, praying what we see here in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put those into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, in the Amplified, it says, fix your mind on these things. So again, by the way, that becomes a great, um, a great filter to use in minding what comes through our eye gate and our ear gate. Amen. All right, so let's look at a third thing that we can do to affair-proof uh, our marriage, and it's number three, guard your motives. So we've talked about eyes and ears. We've talked about thoughts. Then it's getting transparent enough with ourselves, with the Lord, maybe with some accountability partners to try to get the underlying, hey, what's bugging me here? What is my motive behind what I'm doing? What's the motive behind my actions, my responses, my words, my thoughts? Are my motives pure? See, again, love is always going to be looking at the other person's highest good. So being loving doesn't mean not confronting. Being loving doesn't mean you don't deal with and wrestle through difficult things, dysfunctional things, ugly things. But the motive at the end of the day is I'm walking in love. It's your highest good that I'm trying to see accomplished here. Let's look at this principle. First Thessalonians 5, 21 to 23. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Hey, can I just pause here? Philippians, meditating on what's good, thinking on all of those wholesome things, staying away from those other things. Notice product is peace. Over here, proving things, testing things, searching motives, getting rid of the stuff that's not good. He says, uh, the God of peace will sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, 
and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So cool. All right, a fourth thing that we can look at here in a fair proofing our marriage is defend your mouth. Boy, this is kind of very practical stuff, isn't it? Defend your eyes, defend your ears, watch your thoughts, look at your motives. The, the fourth area, then watch what comes out of your mouth. Proverbs 18:21. the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Again, another lengthy portion of Scripture here. I'm going to read through 12 verses in James chapter 3, but I really would ask you to lean in because I know this is such a challenging area of guarding what comes out of our face, guarding the words that come out of our mouths. Let's take a look at it. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect or, or a complete man, able also to bridle the whole body. Interesting. Indeed, we put bits in horse, horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Wow. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs, thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh water. Wow, what, what a staggering look. Going back to Proverbs, that, you know, from the mouth and what we speak is life and death. Here's Ephesians 4.29 in the Amplified. It says, let no foul or polluting language, nor evil word, nor unwholesome or worthless talk, ever come out of your mouth. My goodness, there's a whole sermon in just that sentence. But only such speech as is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others. So again, can I just pause there and comment? This doesn't mean, you know, Pastor Jim, are you saying that I only have to say happy and nice and light and fluffy things? No, we can say tremendously difficult things. We can stand in the face of tremendous unrighteousness, but it ought to come back through all this filter. By the way, I would say what we're talking about the mouth also can apply to our, uh, the mouth as it's typed out in our social media. Because there's so much of a lack of filter and lack of guard that I see everywhere. And especially now that we're in this, this uh, quarantine, you know, the uh, COVID-19 season, that, that people are, are putting their rants, they're putting their frustrations. 
And church, I would really encourage you, uh, ask yourself, what's my motive in sharing? Is this just to tell somebody off? Is this just to uncork my frustration? Or is this, hey, this is difficult, but I believe it's somebody's highest good. There ought to be the filter in love in everything we say, even if it's to somebody who is a perceived enemy of the way we think, of, of, of the things of God, whatever it is, what comes out of our mouth ought to be life-giving. So I, I, I know I'm just kind of meddling beyond just talking about within the marriage front, uh, but it's really important for us to, because we, we don't just put a, a guard on our mouth when it comes to one area. The idea is to live in a place where, where we say, God, so work in my life that what comes out of my mouth is a life-giving thing to all those that I interact with. Hey, I'm still a work in progress with this area. Uh, how about you? How's it going for you? All right, let me finish what it said in, in Ephesians. As a matter of fact, let me go back and just read it again. Let no foul or polluting language, nor leave evil word, nor unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech as is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others, as is fitting to the need and the occasion, that it may be a blessing and give grace, which is God's favor, to those who hear it. So we want to encourage, bless, lift up our spouse every place that we can. Hey, let me just give a reminder. Do you know that we as human beings are wired uh, just in our own psychology, our own biology? We're wired to need something like a seven-to-one ratio of, of positive to negative. So for instance, if you as a spouse say, hey, I'm an equal opportunity communicator, I take one shot and one criticism for every positive thing I say. One shot of criticism for one positive thing. You need to know as human beings that that comes across as an incredibly, an incredibly negative environment. It ought to be something along the lines of there's seven upbuilding, life-giving things for every, every one thing that is not in that case. And again, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying be fluffy. I'm not saying be fake. I'm saying let's look for what's right. Let's look for what's, what's uh, life-giving. Let's look at what's encouraging and make the effort to just speak those things out loud. It's like the, the joke I heard one time, you know, about the couple sitting in marriage counseling. You know, they'd been married, you know, 40 years. And, you know, she said, uh, said to her husband, you, you know, you haven't told me you love me since our wedding day. And his response was, hey, if it changed, I would have let you know. You know, and, and that's meant to be sort of a, a cynical uh, bit of humor, but actually it, it hits far too close to how so many people live. You know, focusing on the negative and, and living together and doing marriage so long that there's no longer an intentionality to speak life and talk about the things that you appreciate and value. Uh, how many know that it's going to be far easier to see somebody pull up to what we're, what we're calling out when we call out the best in them than it is for somebody to move past every place we're pointing out where they're not measuring up or where they're annoying us or bothering us, that kind of a thing. You know, we always want it to be. I know part of my prayer as a matter of fact, you know, let me just move this on to our last point here on how to build up our marriage and affair-proof our marriage and intentionally foster a vision for your marriage. And that gets to the point I was just about to make there. I wanted to say that part of my prayer is, Lord, help me to live in such a way 
that I bring the best out of the people that are up close to me. I pray that regarding my daughters. I pray that regarding my wife. I pray that regarding the staff, uh, you, you know, the pastors and the, the other staff that, that help lead the church here. I pray that for the church family. That's my heart. Lord, that I would live in such a way that my life, my actions, my words, that, that they would pull the best out of others around me. I fall short of that. I fail at that quite a bit. But I will tell you that on a regular basis, Proverbs 29:18, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. In another translation that says, where there is a lack of vision, people perish. That's the vision I have for how I want to live my marriage. That's a, a, a vision of how I want to live as a parent. I want to do it on purpose, and I visit that on a regular basis, both when I look at reflecting on my life, but more times than not, that's in the context of my devotion time, in the context of me praying for those around me. It's not just praying for them, but it's praying, Lord, and in this relationship, help me be the best me that I can be for them. Lord, help me to live in a way where what I do brings the best out of them. So let me ask you a question as we prepare to close. If you're married and and you're listening to this message Are you living on purpose with a vision for your marriage? And what is your vision for your marriage? Did you ever hear this? If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So if you're aiming at certain important things that are a part of the vision of your marriage, as you have something to aim at, you're going to move toward it. You're going to move toward what you focus on. And if you have something spelled out in advance that you've prayed through, that you've walked out with the Lord, you're going to keep moving toward that. So, hey, in, in closing, let me say it this way. Marriage is like a fireplace. We have to regularly put logs on the fire to keep and maintain the heat, to keep maintaining the fire. I want to encourage you, defend your spouse. Defend your marriage. Have values that you want to see expressed in your marriage and defend those things. Defend your marriage goals. Defend having a game plan for your marriage and and, and hold it in highest value. All marriages are going to have times where they face difficulties, where they face tragedies, tough situations. They can either be things that draw you closer together or they can be things that the enemy uses to drive you apart. And I want to suggest that just this handful of things. Notice in each of these, these points that I gave on defending and building and affair-proofing your marriage, they're all things that we do. They're not things that the other person does. If we will take care, and hey, if the other person in the marriage will take care to do these things, then there will be just such a strong, strong hedge of protection around that marriage. And then that marriage will be everything that God intended it to be in every season of the marriage. Sanctity of marriage. Let's pray for marriages here today. If you are not yet married, how beautiful for you to take these moments and say, Lord, I don't know who, I don't know when, I don't know how, but even now I'm praying that you'd work. And, and for those of you that are engaged, preparing to be married, Uh, how cool to be saying so here in this season as we're preparing lord we're giving it to you and for those that are walking any level of of a stretch in your marriage journey let's ask god to move in power in these areas so let's pray 
Heavenly Father, we do just give you glory here today for this incredible, incredible miracle that you've designed, that you've called marriage. And Lord, here together we're in agreement asking for your anointing, for your fresh touch upon every marriage that's within the sound of my voice. Lord, we're praying for newlyweds, praying for those who have been married for just a few years, those who are starting families, those are, uh, who have been married for a while. Lord, empty nesters, just wherever we are in the marriage journey, God, we pray that you would help us build a strong hedge of protection to defend and guard and foster health and your life in our marriages. Lord, wherever there's need, wherever there's dysfunction, God, wherever there's brokenness, we ask that you would put your hand and heal and work in those areas. Wherever there's bitterness or offense or hurt or woundedness, God, come bring healing. God, for those that are preparing to be married, for those who are saying, not yet, but I think someday, Lord, help there to be a, a beginning to walk out these things as lifestyles. So when marriage gets here, it's just part of how, how they see life. God, I pray that you would do miracles here today. I pray that you would give a vision for our marriages either, Lord, like we've never had or like maybe some have not had in a long time. Breathe fresh life, fresh hope, melt away everything that's stale or crusty or dry. Do what only you can do. Lord, recognizing a marriage is a husband and a wife with you in the midst. In a fresh way, Lord, we invite you to be strong in our marriages. And God, we give you all the glory for it. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. See you soon.